0: to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father, we thank you again for the privilege to be able to come and open up your word today here together in this this place, Lord. I pray that you would take this time, Lord, that you would speak through me today, Lord, that these words that we've prepared together, Lord, would uh, reach in and pierce the heart today. So, Lord, I ask for your blessing, and in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 Well, we're in chapter 5 of Matthew, and last week, um, we looked at two really important points that I need to remind you of again because they just kind of permeate the entire chapter. It's really important. So the first one was that when Jesus had finished spending all of his time at, in the days before ministering to the physical needs of these multitudes that were coming to him with all kinds of different ailments and sicknesses and things, it says that he looked out over the crowd and he could see the crowd. But remember, that meant that he, the word that was used was like with spiritual discernment. He was able to look out at the crowd and discern that there were some who were just there because he could heal them physically, but there were some there who that went beyond that who wanted to actually hear what it is that he had to say. And so Jesus it says here that he went off up into a mountain. Now, if you're from Florida, a mountain is when the ground goes like like up a little bit like this. And so what Jesus did is he went up a mountain a little bit to see who really wanted to come and hear what it is that Jesus was going to say. And it says that he called them his disciples. Now, we talked about last week that disciples isn't just the 12 guys. Those are his apostles. Disciples means anybody that is a follower or a learner of Jesus. And so who he's going to be speaking to are those who are his followers or his believers. Now, that included a bunch of people then. It would include a bunch of people after then. It would include a bunch of people After them, and in fact, that includes you also. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're considered a follower, a disciple, a learner of Christ. And so, while he's speaking in this passage and in this chapter and the next three, actually, when he's speaking, who he's speaking to is his disciples, his learners. Essentially, he's speaking to y'all. Y'all. Mm hmm. Okay, it's very important. Okay, so what is the next thing? What is he talking about? Well, if you remember, he goes into verses 3 through 10 are what we call the B attitudes. Remember, we said this wasn't a prescription on how to be a follower of Christ, but rather a description of a follower of Christ. It wasn't say if you do these things, you are a follower. It says, if you're a disciple of Christ, you will be these things. And then he goes through. You remember last, last week, we kind of looked at the fact that this isn't a list that you get to pick from like a menu, like, oh, I'm going to have the, like the Jesus menu, and I'll, I'll pick meekness, and I will pick uh, mercy, um, no, this is like a description, like a whole long description of the characters, character traits of a follower of Christ. But see, what's really important to grasp is that these are not describing earthly benefits of these characteristics, but rather by using the word blessed, or in Greek, markurios, is a word that means benefits of God, Jesus is saying these are spiritual realities, not earthly benefits. That's important to remember as you go through because a lot of these beatitudes are um, misunderstood and, and mispresented to uh, the church, frankly, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about people who are down or depressed or like Eeyore. Remember we talked about Eeyore last week? All right, right. My house blew down. They're not talking about that. Poor in spirit, remember, is the person that says, I have nothing in my spiritual bank account of any value to offer up to Christ. It is a matter of me being emptied of my spiritual bank account so that I can be filled with Christ. You understand, we talked about the different banks, banks, banks accounts. Last week, um, you don't have, I don't have anything that I can offer to Jesus and say, here, let's put this into our spiritual bank account. It's, It's all him. It says, those who are poor in spirit, if you are emptied of your own spiritual bank account and filled up with Christ... There, there is the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on and he said, and when he's talking about blessed are those who mourn, remember, it's not talking about earthly benefit. He's not talking about those who maybe lose a loved one or a job situation or something, or they're sad and someone comes alongside them to comfort them. Blessed are those who mourn, a spiritual reality that he's talking about is blessed are those who mourn over their sinful condition, Because mourning over your sin, we looked at this, leads you to repentance, which brings confession, which leads to uh, being forgiven and restored. We looked at that last week as well, some specific verses about that. So he's saying, blessed are those who are emptied of their own spiritual bank account and filled up with Christ, who mourn over their sin because it drives them repentance and confession and restoration. He says, blessed are those who hunger. And thirst for righteousness, for they will be, what's it say? What does it say? Filled. Filled. This in Greek says not just who hunger and thirst, but are who hungering and are thirsting. It's ongoing. And it's not any, when it says righteousness, this is talking about the righteousness of God. So it's saying that blessed are those who are continuing to hunger and thirst. After the righteousness of God, you will be filled. Remember, it says in, in Jeremiah 29 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Right? In James, oh, I just blanked. James 4 8, draw close to God and he will draw close to you. Right? If you search after him, you will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Boo, that's a bad translation. I'm sorry, it's like that. It's not saying, if I am merciful, then I will give mercy, then I will receive mercy. Like, if I'm merciful to you, then you're going to give mercy to me. Actually, it's not what it says in the Greek language. That it says, blessed are those who understand or comprehend or are full of mercy. They will show mercy. That's what this verse says. It's like, when I understand the mercy that I've received from God... I will then show mercy. In fact, it's almost like I'm a vessel that I'm trying to contain the mercy of God. And I, once I've contained, I'm so full that it overflows from me and spills out into everybody else around me. And so now I am showing mercy. Remember, we looked at Exodus uh, 34 last week where God, after, after you know they had completely failed and Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments and they, they convinced Aaron to make a golden calf for them to worship after God had literally led them out miraculously out of Egypt with like plagues and splitting the sea and all this stuff. And Moses was gone and they were like, you know what we should do to honor God? We should make a cow and worship that because that makes complete sense. And so that's what they did. And so when, it, when, when Moses came down and they were all dancing around this cow, and he threw down these tablets. God says, Moses, cut two more tablets and come back up here. I'm going to give you these again. And it describes him in there. After they've done that, it describes God as, very first thing, merciful, full of mercy. The very attribute of God is mercy that he pours out on us. Mercy that he pours out on us. You remember what mercy means? Not getting what we deserve not getting what we deserve. We deserve hell. God said, but I have mercy and I will give you life through my son, Jesus. We'll see that today. It says, pure in heart, blessed are the pure in heart. I really like this one because the pure in heart, it doesn't mean you're perfect. Pure in heart, it means a heart that is unmixed. It means that you're not trying to combine different ideologies or theories or ideas about God. It means that I have a pure understanding of who God is based on what it says in his word because when my heart is unmixed, when I have an untainted view of God, then I can see God, as it says here, for who God is based on what the Bible says. Blessed are the peacemakers, you know, not the guys that, you know, he's not talking about those who try and get in and, you know, make peace in your family. You may, maybe someone has said that to you. Well, you're, the, you're the peacemaker of our family. So like when my brother argues with my sister and I get in the middle, I'm like, hey guys, hey, can't we all just get along? It's not talking about that. The word peacemaker is one who bravely declares the terms of God, how someone is made whole. That's a long definition for one word, but that's what it means. One who bravely declares the, God's terms for making someone whole. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like sharing the gospel to me. That sounds like the peacemaker is the one who bravely shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a peacemaker. Now, you would think that after hearing all of these amazing characteristics of what a Christian is in these Beatitudes, you would think, you know what, man, I wish I had a neighbor or a coworker like that. That person sounds awesome. Pure in heart, meek, peaceful. Yes. Great. Doesn't everybody want those things? Isn't that who you want to be? Your neighbor next door? I want my neighbor to be meek and pure of heart and, and merciful and forgiving. I need a minute with the hedge. Do you guys remember the hedge? (laughs) I'm sorry. No, but see, here's the thing. What we, we don't see that in the Bible, it doesn't say that that person who's pure of heart, who's merciful, who's loving, we don't see them being nominated as neighbor of the year. We actually see them sought out to be persecuted. Why? Why? Don't people like peacemakers or those who um, are are mourning or hunger uh, after righteousness? Don't people like those things? They do actually do. People do like these types of characteristics, but they like them when they think of them in terms of earthly benefit. But these are spiritual realities that Jesus is talking about, and they are centered around our sinful condition and and An unbelieving world does not like to be confronted with their sin. Think about how you first reacted when someone talked to you about Jesus and said, you need a savior from your sin. What? (laughs) Sin? What? I actually heard a story of a guy who said that he had a coworker come up to him and said, um, she was very excited. She's like, I just want to let you know that I'm going to church this Sunday. And he was like, that's great. You know, Christianity, it's really simple. It's just admitting that you're a sinner. And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I never said anything about being a sinner. Just going to church. The unbelieving world does not like to be confronted with the idea of sin, especially their sin, our sin. So starting in verse 13, Jesus is going to address the need for this message of the sinful condition of man's heart. Let's take a look. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. couple of things. Very first thing, you are Who is he speaking to in verse 13 still? Who is he still speaking to? Us. (laughs) Now I asked that and everyone said us. And I was like, okay, yes, that's it. He was speaking to his disciples who were his followers. And every person who is a follower is considered a disciple, which is us. So he's speaking to us also in this passage. You are salt of the earth. Did you ever hear that saying before when someone says, man, do you know so-and-so? They're the salt of the earth. You know what they really mean is like, they're like, honest, hardworking, maybe plain, you know, just like hardworking, salt of the earth kind of people. That is not what Jesus is talking about. I actually did go to a wedding where the officiant made this comparison. It was like, this couple, they're the salt of the earth. They're hardworking. I was like, that doesn't, they may be, <laughs> but that is not what this passage is talking about. Salt of the earth. And by the way, when it says salt of the earth, it doesn't mean you're of the earth. It means you're salt to the earth. You are salt to the earth. Okay. It would be like if I, you and I were having a conversation and I said, I'm the principal of the school. I'm not a student from the school who's the principal. I'm the principal to the school. And it's the same sense that this is used here. You are the salt to the earth. But if that salt loses its flavor... How shall it be seized? This good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. This is what it says. The salt that has lost its saltiness is this. Remember, we're talking about spiritual realities. That's what Jesus is going through. Salt that loses its saltiness is someone who preaches a message that, to use a Bible term, simply tickles the ears. It means that it just tells people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And don't get hung up on preaches. That's not everyone standing here. It means any time that you talk to somebody about Jesus, if it doesn't include the need for a Savior because of their sin, you're not salty. Martin Luther would say, it is preaching that does not name sin as sin. So I'm sad to say that there are many churches in this country that are very satisfied just to talk to you about how much God loves you. God does love you. You know how much he loved you? He sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. If you don't have that part in the message, if you don't, it, that's it's like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life because you are sinful. That's the part that you cannot leave out or else he says you're salt that's lost, it's saltiness. This person is now ineffective in God's hands. It's like salt that's no longer salty. Now salt in the Bible has many different illustrations that it's used for. Here, I think Jesus is using it because he's talking about how, because of its preserving qualities. This is why he uses salt as an example, because of its preserving qualities. Salt was used to prevent food from rotting. And Jesus is saying that salt prevents corruption, but if it is no longer salty, corruption then takes place. Do you understand the analogy that Jesus is making? Salt prevents corruption. Sin is corruption. Salt that's not salty does not stop corruption. A message that doesn't include your need to be saved from your sin does not save you from corruption. Thanks. That's not my analogy. I'm just taking it right out of the Bibles. So, uh, so if you're only telling people that God loves them, but not telling them that they need a savior from their sin, you're not helping them. Another example that, God, that Jesus could make in this, in this place is uh, if there is an ax that was once sharp and useful, if it becomes dull, it's set aside by the woodsman and it doesn't, doesn't stop being an ax, but it is no longer effective for what it was created for if you have that uh, my dad used to tell me all the time if you've got a knife or an axe or something, make sure that it is sharp or else it is no good as the thing that it is you just put that dull axe down and you pick up a sharp axe Jesus is saying, if you're sharing with people in your life as followers of Jesus Christ, which is who he's talking to, if your message to a friend or a loved one or a neighbor or a coworker doesn't include the idea that they need a savior because of their sin, you're not helping them. In fact, I would say you're probably a hindrance because you're planting the idea that God loves you no matter what. He does love you, but he says you're sinful, and I, but I've made a way for you through Jesus. He's going to go on to further emphasize this point in the next verses. Let's look at that, 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Same thing, he's saying the same thing now, just with a slightly different illustration. He's using the idea of a light or a lamp that you can't hide it under a bushel. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Come on, did anybody go to Sunday school? Just Then it says, hide it under a bushel. No! (laughs) Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm gonna... Right, all right, some of you got it. I mean, as kids, we were like, (gasps) (laughs) this is what I've learned. (laughs) Yes, he's saying like, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. it's, It's literally is what it's saying is if there is a city that's on a hill, you can't help but see it. You are the light of the world. Remember, you are the light to the world is what he's saying there. Um, A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who enter the house. Light, remember this is the same example as salt. Salt prevents corruption. Light exposes what's in the dark. This is not a hard concept. We get this. If you go into a dark room after a, you know, a hurricane blows through and it knocks out all the power and you're in your house and it's dark, you grab a flashlight and you go into a dark room. He's like, come on, everybody, let's go in. And you light the flashlight. It exposes whatever was in the dark right in front of you. We totally understand this analogy. We all do. If you went in, though, and you said, okay, everybody, come on in. To you turned on the light and then you covered it with your hand, all of a sudden that flashlight is of no benefit to you or to the people who you are trying to lead with that light. You understand? That's what he's saying. You don't light a light and then cover it with a basket. Light exposes what's in the dark. And according to John 1 verse 5, and the darkness does not overcome it. You know, when you light a flashlight in a dark room, the, the darkness doesn't overwhelm the flashlight. The flashlight illuminates the room. Do you know that it is such a cool contrast, dar- darkness and light? If, you, if everything is dark, the, actually the darker it is, the more the light is seen when you turn it on. Like if this room was pitch black and I turned on a flashlight, you would all see that very brightly, wouldn't you? Like in the middle of the day when it's really light and I turn on a flashlight, you might not even know. But if it's really, really dark and you light a flashlight, it exposes everything that's in the dark. But if you cover it, it benefits nobody. In fact, he goes beyond that and says, don't just not cover it, put it on a lampstand so that everyone in the room can benefit from the light of it. Remember, he's saying, if you are preaching a message to somebody that doesn't include, um, the, doesn't include the idea that you need to be saved from your sin, then you're not helping them. You're not salty anymore. If you come in and you have the light, but you cover it up and it doesn't expose anything at all, you're not benefiting anyone with that message. And Jesus says, you're ineffective now. Are you going to be salty Are you going to be a light that is uncovered and on the lampstand? In verse 16, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Notice, let your light shine doesn't mean your light, but in Greek, it says the light of you, meaning the light that you have now that isn't from you, but is was given to you. Where does our light come from? It's not from us. Think about a flashlight. If you take the batteries out of a flashlight and then turn the flashlight on, does it light? No. Okay, or if they're dead because you haven't checked them since the last hurricane. <laughs> I had a lot of groans there. Did personal experiences? <laughs> Did anybody check these? No, see, the light from a flashlight comes from the power that was put into it so you're the flashlight. What's the power? The Holy Spirit has come into us. That's the power. Let that light shine before men that you may they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, here's the thing. The object of our shining is not that we, that people may see how good we are or even see us at all, but that they may see God's grace in us and cry, "What a God these people have see he's saying so shine your light that when people see you they see the glory of God not you right that you would look at somebody like me and this amazing job that I'm doing here and say God must be amazing if he can get that out of this guy Now, he's going to go on. Remember, what we're talking about, he's talking to his followers. That's us. He's talking about spiritual realities and specifically the need for us to be able to recognize the sinful condition of our hearts so that we realize how much we need a Savior. He continues here with this theme in verse 17 Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the, the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill." All right, so it's not like Jesus is coming and saying all that stuff that Moses gave you, that's not important because now I'm here kind of a thing. Actually, what he said was, I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Now, that word destroy isn't him saying, I'm going to take a, like a sledgehammer to a wall. The word destroy there in Greek actually is a word that they would use when they were describing someone who would bring in an animal who was hooked up to a cart, and they would take off the harness and bring that animal into the stable. As if they were saying, this animal is no longer needed. Okay, so let me, let me connect those dots for you. What Jesus was saying was, I didn't come to say that the law was no longer needed. But I came to fulfill it or complete it, is what he's saying. The law had a requirement. Jesus said, I came to fulfill that requirement requirement. He says, for surely I say to you, till heaven, er, heaven and earth will pass. What does it say? I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. But what did he say he just did? He came to Fulfill. Okay, not to destroy, he says, I didn't come to say that it was of no use, I've come to fulfill it. So the idea was, what is the purpose of the law then? If he's saying that the law still has a purpose, even though I came to fulfill it, there is a purpose for the law. What is the purpose of that law? I'm going to turn over, you can go with me there if you want, Galatians chapter 3. Galatians, right before Ephesians or you can jot it down and just listen. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So Jesus, uh, Paul writes here that the role of the law was to act as our tutor or our schoolmaster to help us to see that we needed Christ. Christ. In fact, what he was saying and what he's going to say here is that you have to keep the law perfectly if you want to live by the law. But so you will know that well, you'll, you'll look at the law and say, Man, I could never keep that perfectly. Paul says, That's right. That's right. You can't. But Jesus fulfilled it. So that drives you to Jesus. And Jesus said, I haven't come to say that the law is no more use and should be put away, but rather it has a purpose to be fulfilled perfectly and could only be perfectly fulfilled by me, Jesus would say. And he did. Jesus never transgressed the law in any point ever. Never transgressed the law in any point ever. So maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, but wasn't there like a couple of times when like he did something on the Sabbath. And then they came and they said, Jesus, your disciples are eating, or you're, you ate the showbread, or all these other things that they tried to say. You're transgressing the law. Um, actually, Jesus wasn't transgressing the law, but was transgressing or rejecting their interpretation of it since it had been given. They had added a whole bunch of interpretation to the law in, in trying to help, help them and everyone else keep it And Jesus says, I'm not about your interpretation of what you say the law says. I am about what the law says, and I have kept it perfectly, perfectly, even every jot and tittle. Do you know what jot and tittle is? It's, first of all, super fun to say. Let's all try it. Ready? (laughs) Jot and tittle. Okay. What it actually means in Hebrew is like the smallest little part, like a jot is like the dot of an eye. And um, a tittle is it maybe says in your Bible stroke of the pen, right? But it is where we would get the saying, um, dot every i and cross every t. You know, you know that means like pay a lot of attention to these very like every detail. Dot every i, dot every i, cross every t, every jot and tittle. He's saying that every dot and every t will be crossed by me. Jesus says it will be completely fulfilled by me. And Paul says the purpose of the law then isn't so that you can look at it and say, well, I just got to fulfill this law, and then I can get into heaven on my own righteousness. And Jesus says, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that if you want to try. Maybe you're here. Maybe you're here today, and you're thinking, I thought all we had to do was be good. Good people. I just had to be good people. And 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 hey, maybe you'll come and say to me later, I am a good person. I've never killed anyone. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> glad you never killed anyone I mean, incidentally that's just that's not something good you've done that's something bad you haven't done it doesn't work exactly like that no maybe it's like like well like i tutor people or i help ladies across the street or i carry groceries or i do a, like i call and encourage people those are all great and i'm glad keep doing all those things but those things alone aren't getting you into heaven you may say yeah but i'm pretty good pretty good isn't even close. It's not even close. And maybe you think, no, I'm more than pretty good. I'm really good. I'm really, really good. Great. Not even close. That's not even close. If you're here and you're thinking, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, you're not getting into heaven or a good person. Either one of those things based on your own righteousness. That Jesus is going to say down here that unless you are more perfect than the scribes and the Pharisees, you're in big trouble. Unless, unless you're seen through me, Jesus says, unless you're seen through me. Because, again, when Jesus says, I fulfilled the law, he's not just talking about all the requirements, but the, what was required, there was judgment attached to the law, that if you didn't keep it or if you transgressed it, there was judgment. And Jesus said, I fulfilled the judgment as well, because I went to the cross. This communion state. We're going to look at that. He says, this is my body that was, that was given for you, Given for you means in your place. He says, I went to the cross in your place. Even though I lived perfectly, Jesus says, I went to the cross in your place so that you are righteous because of me, only because of me. He says in verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them to be shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven it is a warning that god, that Jesus is giving them to say if you are going to teach this teach it completely and say you need a savior to be saved from your sin do not tell people god loves you and it's all okay it is incomplete it's an incomplete gospel it's counterfeit he warns against that. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to point something out to you right here that's really interesting. This says that your righteousness, that means your goodness, whatever you think makes you good, that has to be better than exceeds is abundantly better than. That's what that word means in Greek. Abundantly better. So it's not just like you're like one, you know, good unit better than uh, the Pharisees, but that you're like exceedingly abundantly better than a Pharisee. And not just a Pharisee. You see, this says the scribes and Pharisees. So this means like every scribe and Every Pharisee, because he was making a point, because there were some scribes or Pharisees that could keep like three quarters of the law, but then the the last quarter they messed up on. But this group over here, they had those down, but they were not keeping these other parts. Uh, Maybe this group of Pharisees, they had covered the parts that these guys couldn't keep up, but they had downfalls in their lives as well. But among all of them, they probably had it all covered. And Jesus said, you got to be better than that. You have to be better than that. So here's a test, a little test for you guys. How many of you, by show of hands, and don't be embarrassed, have ever sinned even one time in your entire life, one time, even once? Everybody, everybody, right? So guess what? You're not perfect. That disqualifies you from getting into heaven on your own righteousness. But The good news, the gospel says that Jesus was perfect and went to the cross on your behalf, in your place, and shed his blood to cleanse you from sin so that when God looks down at you, he sees you as righteous because of Jesus. Amen? That is what this is talking about. That's what this is talking about. There is no way, that I am going to stand up here and tell you, God loves you just the way you are. He does love you. But he said, you're sinful and you need a savior. I have to tell you that. I have to look right there. Right there. It says that I have to tell you. Guess what? You have to take that message and you have to say it too. You have to go and you have to tell your family. When you're talking to someone and say, you know, God loves me so much. I am a sinner, but God has forgiven me. That's our message. I'm a sinner, but God has forgiven me. I believe that. The Bible says if I believe it, I'm going to heaven. Amen? Who wants to go to heaven? Me. Right now. (laughs) One of these days. That's going to be so great. From 21 on... We're not going to do that today. We're going to come back to this. With twenty-one on, he switches gears a little bit. But you see what he's going to talk about from twenty-one on is he's going to he's going to talk about the issues of the heart as opposed to the external, um, uh, the external keeping of the of the law. Where he says, you know, oh, you've heard it said, don't murder. Good thing, but. I say, which is really important because no one ever does that in the Bible before, you know, no prophet ever said, but I say. They always say um, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets said, thus saith the Lord. Jesus comes and he says, you've heard us said this, but I say this. In fact, if you go like to the end, hang on, let me find it. It says at the end of chapter 7, this was when Jesus is done speaking the Sermon on the Mount. And it was so when Jesus had ended the sayings that people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Why did Jesus, why was Jesus able to speak with authority about these things? Because he's God and this is his word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this word today. The reminder, Lord, uh, that um, the condition of our heart is sinful, but that you made a way through your son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. So Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, I desperately pray for anyone here who is trying to work their way into heaven through good works or being a good person. Lord, as we saw so clearly today that you pointed out that it is impossible for us to do that and that we desperately need a Savior, um, which we have in Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord, for that reminder. I pray right now, Lord, for anyone here who still has not accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and embraced His righteousness in the sight of God. Lord, that you would just be speaking into their hearts right now and urging them to uh, come to that realization and admit that they're a sinner who needs a Savior, Lord. I, I thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to be saved. In your name, Lord.